0: Welcome to Why Not Both. My name is Pam Schaefer, and I'm a musician and therapist in Los Angeles. Why Not Both is all about how our multiple passions inform our identity. And this season, we are brought to you by Under the Radar magazine and produced by Laura Studeris. If you like what you hear, please make sure to like us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, and come spend time with us on social media. We are at WNBthepodcast, and that is both on Instagram and on Twitter. For this episode, we got to chat with Ramona Gonzalez, or as you might know her, Night Jewel. She is a brilliant musician and talented teacher, so it was an absolute pleasure getting to hang out with her virtually. While you're enjoying this week's episode, she kindly requests that you check out the Coalition for Humane Immigration Rights. It is linked in the description of this podcast, so you can go and support and read all about it. I hope you enjoy our interview. So, thank you for having me. Welcome to Why Not Both, Ramona. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> this is extremely odd circumstance. Um It's so funny because usually I start interviews by asking people what they do, but that's such like an unusual question at this current time.
1: (laughs) Well, it's unusual for me anyway, because I feel like um, what I did for so long um, was work in an industry that was very like ethereal. That is like the music industry, the arts industry as a freelance artist. Right. And Mm -hmm. um, I always felt, I still feel no matter what I do that I'm an artist um at, at base, but um jobs were always a confusing arena, like being paid right. and financing one's life. Now um in the past two years I've been or year and a half rather I've been in a very, very different situation, which is in the stability of academia. Right. Um so what I do right now, um, in this time when everything is so unstable. Is is just that, like I'm I'm an instructor and I'm a student, and um, I feel extremely fortunate for that to be the case right now.
0: Yeah, like um, before we hit record, you were talking about something that I was like, oh my god, say just that, Um, where you were saying that like you actually were really relieved that you had your final exam.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I like I said, March 10th was the last day that UCLA was open. I had Mm -hmm. meetings that day. Um, the week after is finals week and I'm doing a lot of like um, language immersion right now. Um, so I have uh, lots of like tests, language mm-hmm. tests, and then following that, um, my exam to, um, to advance to my master's degree um, and that I've been preparing for for months. And oh I God. was actually really relieved that they decided to go through with that exam. Uh Um, Because initially it was supposed to be proctored at UCLA in person and they were trying to figure out how they could proctor us. Um, It's a timed exam. It's a six hour um, exam where you write three essays. But anyways, I was just like glad that we kept going with it because it just gives me this sense of normalcy in what is like a very chaotic world right now. Um, So I actually appreciated um, being able to go through with those steps.
0: And I love that you said you were creating a sense of normalcy for your students too, now that we've like shifted to online learning and are using all these like new tools that you're like, but I wanted to at least make it okay for them.
1: Well, it's interesting because, you know, I think that all of us feel very like precarious and vulnerable right now um, Uh and emotional and worried and anxious. And part of what being an instructor is, and I feel this like with my yoga instructor right now, you know, who's doing Uh virtual streams. You know, part of what being an instructor and a teacher is that's so important right now is um, being um, a source of comfort for people um, Mm. and acting like you have things under control. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do with my students is I'm making them feel like everything is under control. I'm giving them feedback in their midterms. I'm sending them assignments. I'm telling them that class is going to be held on Thursday and it's going to proceed as normal. You right. know. But meanwhile, behind the scenes, I'm, I'm also looking to people for that exact source of comfort. Like my yoga teacher, I'm like, <laughs> I need my 8 a.m. Saturday class. um, so it's it's weird to play these different roles right
0: now I was saying to a friend of mine that I feel like we're all playing like mental health hot potato where we're (laughs) like okay who's gonna get the potato now Mm -hmm. who's gonna be having the breakdown who's gonna be doing the support
1: absolutely (laughs) I feel that 100 percent.
0: and it's such a strange time to be an artist as well like I'm not sure what your reaction to to this messaging in the media was but so many people were like what a great time to start writing and though I actually have been writing um it's not like I've actually been writing I would say more than usual because there's a patina of anxiety that actually has I would say stopped me from being necessarily more productive
1: yeah I mean I think that it's a bit um odd to demand that artists, or not demand, but suggest that artists who in this very time have lost a huge sense of financial security would be inspired to create. I think that's very, very strange. And it speaks to the public's lack of understanding of what it means to be an artist. Like, they think that we're just like out here eating garbage, writing masterpieces. It's like, (laughs) no like we need like a stable environment for that to happen. Um, I'm lucky because I have that stability um, through through my academic career. And part of what I do in my career in academia is creative because I'm in musicology. So mm-hmm. I do write about my own processes and musings about like what it means to be a vocalist and a singer. So I'm incorporating my creative um, sort of self into my scholarly self where I'm trying to make that incorporation happen. So like I already have that sort of, here for me and I'm I'm in a stable Mm -hmm. situation but I do think it's presumptuous of people to think that masterpieces should be written at this time. I mean of course that's like the grand narrative of like, you know, um like I saw this medieval medievalist musicologist post this thing about how Guillaume de Machot, you know, Mm -hmm. went into hiding during the plague and and wrote like a bazillion, you know, pieces, um, and then came out. 20 years later or whatever right. So yes that does happen <laughs> that does happen sometimes according to the legend right but you know not everybody um he was also patroned by a freaking church there and you he could go. just go into his little you know vestibule or whatever and like there <laughs> paid so yeah it's like no artists might not be able to make anything right now because guess what artists need support we can't just like spew out all this goodness for you to listen to without having some support and i think what's great is that bandcamp realized that yes and that was that was a really wonderful gesture
0: um I think that you hit the nail on the head that what people are missing and what I was going to ask you about your art in particular was I could I saw you play at human resources and could see like the meticulousness of what you're creating and how much time would go into it but in order to spend that much time you need resource and that's like financial resource the resource of time itself where you know I can't imagine anyone right now unless they come from an extremely wealthy family or have patronage in some way, being able to be like, yeah, I think I'm going to dip from society for 20 years and create some masterpieces. I'm like, we have <laughs> enough trouble being like, I'm going to dip for 20 minutes. Exactly.
1: <laughs> Until the first when rent's do. Yeah. Um, I, I think I'm glad that you came to that show. That was like this test run of me trying out these new um, pieces that I've been creating and um, which I'm like, was supposed to try to finish in April. Um, I don't, really know if I I was actually thinking about can I go into the studio with my engineer or is that not social distancing like what if I'm in the control room and he's or I'm in the vocal booth and he's in the control control room room. (laughs) Um, anyways this is like things that are rolling through my mind first world problems am I right but anyways so I yeah I've I've um I've been in a in an interesting situation because um you know I was a very sort of uh, unstable but um you know, happily artistically fulfilled artists for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, but just um, the economics of it were always sort of like, hmm, what's going to happen? Um, and right. um, I felt like I was just getting too, um, not too old, like in the age sense, but I was just tiring of touring in a sort of indie way. Of, mm-hmm. of, it was mm-hmm. very difficult for me. Um, just I'm like kind of a sensitive person and like, You know, I just we get really tired and sick. And so I was thinking of and also not only that, like that aside, um, I'm just like really into um, scholarship and reading and writing. And so I've always wanted to return to academia. Um, I recreated those songs that you heard over like a course of like um, probably I started in early 2018 oh, cool. um, when I was more sort of cr- trying to figure out um, how to get back to sort of uh, more like uh, experimental exploratory sense of um, writing um, mm-hmm. you know using sequencers and um, exploring more like um, electronic music instrument electronic music um.
0: right
1: anyways I uh, was able to Uh, let's say polish those pieces that were made in a sort of like spurt of a six month period during my time when I finally entered back into UCLA. Gotcha. So it's true that UCLA, when I, I got into the program, I only applied to one program. So I was in Europe in 2017 on tour for like six weeks or something in this van mm-hmm. it really it's just like, I was so uncomfortable. So cold. Just like, I'm just like, what am I freaking doing? You know, <laughs> like, I'm I love the music that I'm playing, but I'm so exhausted. Like, like I'm not, very I'm not cool. too many, more you know what I mean what is happening like why am I going around to like these weird towns singing in a cat suit like I'm exhausted you know what I mean and so I was like all right um you know and I had thought about this program for a while and so I just wrote all my entrance essays on tour and I applied to one program and I applied to this one program and this one fellowship Wow. UCLA, that I said, if I don't get this fellowship that will fund me for four years, then I'm not going to go to school and I'll have to figure out something else. Wow. Anyway, so I, I ended up getting the fellowship um, to UCLA's- Congratulations. Mouth, thanks. Musicology program. And um, at the time that um, I leading up to um, matriculating, my you know marriage of 12 years started to fall apart. So not only did I end up- I actually was in a really wild position right before I entered this program where I was actually without a home for like six weeks. Wow. And I was just sort of like making music, um, the, what, the music that you saw yeah. during this period of going from house to house and just, just really upset and sad and freaking out and like writing and stuff like that. So, Okay. On one hand, yes, during a time of crisis, it is very possible that artists can create things. I'm not saying, I'm not denying that it's true. I, I did it myself. I was, I was essentially homeless for six weeks writing these pieces. Right. That being said, it shouldn't be expected, you know. There we it's, go. It's, it's, it's just the expectation that I find. Um, yeah,
0: and it sounds like, uh, in a way, it's almost like that became. Kind of like how we were talking about like the the normalcy of classes and the normalcy of academia. It sounds like almost in that situation, music was your normalcy, but not the normalcy of like I'm in a small town somewhere in Europe in a cat suit, but more, <laughs> more like <laughs> more like the normalcy of like oh I'm creating something. Like it's almost like the act of creation sounds like it was more calming than the then like then the yeah. then good job Pam. Then the touring portion of it or the promotion portion of it. It sounds like the actual creation itself was what was important.
1: Yeah, it's totally, that's totally right. I, I've always used um, music as a form of, you know, stabilizing myself and, and escaping whatever sort of chaos or dysfunction is around me ever since I was really young. So Mm -hmm. it was a form of, um, sort of solace during this really difficult time, um, a crisis on this scale, on this global scale that really puts into question, even question, existential questions about um, humanity, about power and control over man, over nature, of, of our ability to even have a say in our future. Those are questions that are so much larger than a breakup. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like It's yeah, like I, I... a breakup is, is really tough. I'm not going to say that it wasn't tough. I was dying. Okay. But like, but I knew that I would be fine. I I knew that I would find a place to live eventually, that my friends were here, that I'd be sad, but I'd get over it. You know, um, this is different. We don't know. There's no precedent for this for us personally, maybe in history, there has been Uh, there's so much unknown that it's harder to imagine creativity being an outlet for me at this very moment in time. I know I I can see it coming that I can work, but um, existential questions are a little bit more difficult to um, remedy with just music, you know?
0: Yeah. And it's, it's strange because to me, it speaks to people wanting that sense of comfort that comes from the arts. Like I I know that I've, for instance, been interviewing I've had more requests for interviews, and I've been interviewing more people in the last two weeks than I've been doing the entire year that the podcast existed. Wow. Yeah. And so there's been a higher demand for people that want to share their stories. And there's also been higher listenership of people who want to hear people's stories. Wow. And so, yeah, <laughs> that's been kind of fascinating. Like um, low key, I started this because I, much like you, am, kind of have a foot in each world, mm-hmm. like in the music world and then in the world of doing um, doing therapy. And I had been in my own master's program and then internship and things like that. And it felt very strange for me sometimes to talk to people about both of those spheres because they're like, you do what and what. (laughs)
1: Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. So I started this podcast on like kind of a lark to be like, there must be other people who are in multiple fields. Um, And I discovered that in fact, just about everybody is, um, and everyone's coming out of the woodwork to talk about it now. And I'm like, what is it about now Mm -hmm. that this in people and I think you nailed it when you said it has to do with that feeling of like well we haven't been put in this existential kind of place before and it has been kind of a cultural like socio-political tipping point anyway leading up to this over the last several years globally Um, that it's like oh what about like global socio-economic instability now with a pandemic like what's that gonna precipitate and no one knows
1: well also I think an important part um, with not wanting to expose um, multiple sides of oneself, um, in at least in in the arts, is to uphold this myth of uh, myth of authenticity, but myth of power mm-hmm. um, and myth mm-hmm. of celebrity also. Myths are really important when you want to create and and sort of instantiate like hegemony. Yeah. But right now, people are realizing that that hegemony is. The ones that are making people sick, that are privileging rich people over poor people that aren't helping people pay rent, that aren't keeping people safe. And I think that that desire for this myth, mythos with each artist is starting to break down as its importance is starting to break down and being real about who you are is slowly coming out into the ether as being this thing that we might value and not real in the fake sense. Like real as in like woke (laughs) or real as in like, um, not that there's anything wrong with being woke, but, but you know, false, false realism. Yeah. Like performative realness where, you know, you write a tweet and you think that you've saved the world. You know, I'm talking about people really exposing um, the cracks of their persona. And, and so I, I like, I'm pleased to see that. And I imagine that that's what is allowing people to be okay with saying, you know, I'm not just an artist. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I have other things that, uh, for me at least, like I have other things that I'm interested in. Like I apologize. I can't be that pure sphere of, of artistic you know, ingenuity that you want. Like, I also am like a nerd. I like to read about like, you know, the science behind timbre. And I like to read about like the philosophy of like language and speech in ancient, yes. Gre- in ancient Greece. Like, yes, these are things that I care about. Like, I'm not just thinking about how to make um, songs, even I- though that, even though that is really, really important to me, but we're multifaceted. Um, and we are um, in need of various income streams that's just that's just the facts
0: you know I like what you said about like both the mythology of the artist because I think that influences how people express themselves artistically particularly on social media I was thinking about like the change that I don't know if you've witnessed this on your streams but the change I've seen in people presenting themselves on social media Mm -hmm. including artists because for a long time I'd say a long time we've only had social media for not a long time Mm-hmm. In the grand scheme of things um but kind of the norm was to create essentially this persona that tied like three to five traits that were understandable as an artist into a package so that you could then message to other people this is mm-hmm. who I am if you're into these three to five things you're going to like who I am and that's going to be the culture of my artist sphere mm-hmm. and now it's like people are all over the place and I actually I much prefer that I want to see like I don't just want to see three to five things that happen to be tied to you like if your artist persona is all about like I like high fashion and weed and sustainability and those are the things that that's what I like and that's it
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah I guess that gets into um The idea of branding and branding being really important for certain artists and brands have to be simple and digestible. Right. Um, And I think that maybe that just feels really um, just vacuous at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I I guess I've always seen that as vacuous, right? I mean, I have a brain, but (laughs) a lot of people... A lot of people don't see it that way and artists who do have brains yep. know that that's the case and they yep. pander to that.
0: Yep, and they and, yep.
1: But I think that like maybe they're they're feeling like I don't even know if I can uphold these brands anymore during this time. It's just right. it's too it's this this crisis is too big um in the sense that it makes any sort of simplistic like conceptual framework for who I am seem petty and, and pointless, you yep. know? Um, yep. So I I think, yeah. <laughs> What's interesting <laughs> is that ever since I started making music, I have never been able to do the branding thing um, ever. Like it, it's, so just, I, I, it's because I was like one of those kids in like second grade or third grade or whatever, when you learn like how to graph things, mm-hmm. and I was like, I don't understand why you connect point A and point B in a straight line. Like why can't you like Why can't you put a spiral in between? Like shut up like why I mean this? so it's like this is like me thinking every day like but I'm not a brand though I'm a person I'm not and like, labels are like but you you know you see and I'm like but I don't I don't get it why why do I have to put point a and point b together in a straight line I, I don't I can't do that so that's I mean basically now that's why now you know why I'm in
0: academia <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's my playground. Oh my God. That's so funny. I was like, that makes total sense. My first grade teacher apparently wrote on a progress report of mine. My mom still quotes this, which is why I know this offhand, um, is that apparently I was described as being very quiet, but knows the answer if you call on me. But interestingly, she said she has a lot of pictures in her mind because whenever we, yeah, whenever we'd be assigned to draw something or like, you know, all those craft projects, apparently none of my pictures looked like my other pictures. Wow! And she was just like, well, that's unusual. That's so cool. (laughs) And I was like, thanks. Yeah, and like, I guess I, you know, it's not like I was sitting there as like a six year old being like, "Mm, I must innovate. Um, I was just being a six year old. Um,
1: It's interesting because, well, I'm reading this very incredible book right now called More Than One Voice by this philosopher named Adriana Caballero. And she talks about how we think about words, um, as being, um, connected to, well, this is also like a Piercean, like c- a Caesarean concept, but, mm-hmm. uh, c- you know, signifier and signified, um, that there's one sort of linguistic um, word that can connect to multiple instantiations of the same thing. So the word dog can apply to all these different dogs out there, you know, like greyhounds and German shepherds and chihuahuas and everything. And there's this, um, this philosopher talks about how there could be a person who could see every single one of those creatures as completely unique and wouldn't be able to understand how we could tie this one word to all these different things. Like it would almost be as if you called my hard drive in front of me a dog and then my water bottle a dog and (laughs) my lamp a dog. Like these things are all just too different to really make them all equal. And that's what language does is it equalizes everything, but pictures Uh pictures don't, drawings don't, um, paintings don't. Everything that you make artistically is its own like unique object um, that can't be necessarily replicated in the same sense. So I think that you were onto something.
0: That's fascinating. Because yeah, when you were talking about people's frustration with your either inability or refusal to brand your art, when I was thinking about that, like when I was thinking about your show that I saw, because I had heard of you before, your name really appealed to me because, well, I like shiny things and have insomnia. So I was like, cool, cool, cool. I'm bored with this. Um, But I like that your art couldn't necessarily be schematized in a certain way. And when I was watching your show and- like chilling on the floor um I I was thinking about that of like how would I describe this to someone else and I was like oh it's kind of like an experiential sound bath with also really cool visuals and I like her voice a lot but like there was no one thing that I was just like oh this captures the thing right and that's that's one of the reasons why I enjoyed it so much is that like I realized I was just like oh I'm just really into this experience and I'm you know I'm happy to be here and I'm happy to witness this and I'm happy to be part of it yeah Uh,
1: I think i th- I tell my students that they should always conceptualize something in terms of genre um if if they want to make a project, and I do do that I think of genres um, because genres are ways to signify to the listener what where you are in history mm-hmm. um, and just um like what you're trying to say in reference to all different other kinds of different music and I definitely keep that in mind when i 'm making albums like my last album was very much like um you know, a slice of different genre worlds, whether it was like the more groove based music of like Maxwell with like, mm-hmm. you know, kind of Janet Jackson style vocals. And then, you know, different kinds of um, more like early eighties um, electronic UK experimentalisms, like all these things kind of like mm-hmm. drawn together um, in different songs, those kinds of like genre experiments that I do with each album, which are very like intentional and, and, and thought through it's not, it's not exactly the same thing as branding. It's right. it's 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 a little different for me. And I know that a lot of people think about branding in terms of genre. Also, they're like, I'm gonna make this hip hop country song a number one, right? Well, <laughs> um, and that is that's great. But the the way that it like changes from um, an artistic genre collage into a brand is really just like an artist's intention. Yeah. And that's so hard to pin down. And so it's I try not to um judge whether someone is definitely doing something um, you know, insidious with their kinds of branding because sometimes it can just be something kind of clever, you know? Right. Um it's really just a feeling that I get from artists and I don't know how yeah. to quantify that feeling exactly. Um
0: That's funny that you say that because there are some artists that I can think of that like I feel like their quote brand is like a really genuine like amplified expression of parts of themselves and like I'm really on board for that or I'm like oh you've taken things that are a part of yourself and just kind of boosted boosted them a little bit right um whereas others I feel it feels different when it's contrived
1: and that's why I study musicology right all of my all of my papers and I mean not all of them but a lot of them are about trying to understand like the ethical framework around this music is it something that I can get behind in a way? Mm-hmm. Like why, and what are the nuances behind what it what it is saying? I mean, I just wrote a big paper around branding um for this uh, economic musicology class um, where we just learned about the economics of music and mm-hmm. how that affects art and stuff like that and these papers are really just dialectics between like, there are these good things about this, but then there are these other things that are so troublesome. And then there's these right. good things and then there's these troublesome things. And like, <laughs> how do we bring this together? So it's like, it's like, even in a, even in a 15 minute period of being on Twitter and looking at an artist and like what they're doing, I could, go, yeah. I could ping pong from like, this branding is so gross to like, I actually really like this within minutes, you know, Yes, it's, it's just like it's, what I'm trying to say is like, I don't hold like a sort of like stable personality perspective around people's branding strategies because I myself don't know what the answer is but I think what we're talking about right now is like this whole crisis has um brought to fore people's real personalities a little bit Mm -hmm.
0: more Mm -hmm.
1: and then we see like well why weren't you showing us that in the first place
0: yeah it's almost you know in some ways I guess like I would I don't know if it's just a personal bias. It probably is because I don't know how to speak from a perspective that's not my own necessarily, but I prefer things that are complicated and maybe a little messy. Mm -hmm. Like I find them more comforting than something that is tidy. Like when something is tidy, it sometimes gives me pause because I'm like, that's a little uncanny. Like, totally, you know, and so I'm enjoying seeing, you know, even missteps, like obviously not like, you know, people doing bad things to others, but like I enjoy seeing almost like when the mask comes off and you're like oh yeah <laughs>
1: <That's-> <laughs> oh yeah it's great it's just like it's like the celebrity video with imagine you're oh god, like, you <laughs> all are idiots i love it oh my god i had a yes. feeling you were all idiots but now
0: i'm certain of it now and- we've got a list of the idiots <laughs> yeah it's
1: great it's great it, it just it just brings them ba- it brings them back down to earth i'm like natalie portman oh my god i was such a fan of you when i was a kid or whatever and now like, look at you look at you what
0: are you you doing it makes
1: me like her more because I'm like see yeah we all are just like we all just don't know what we're doing
0: we all have no idea she yeah one no of,
1: clue yeah one of
0: my clients said the funniest thing and uh they did say that I'm allowed to quote them on this because I was like oh this is perfect she's mm-hmm. like she said to me she's just like gosh this uh this whole thing is really people just like showing their asses and telling on themselves.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's funny I I can't imagine being a therapist right now cuz it was funny cuz I'm um luckily through UCLA's incredible um health insurance in like practically free very good therapy right now.
0: Heck and heck, was, UCLA. And I,
1: yeah, and um I, I mean, UCLA is a corp and like, I'm not trying to like, you know, say that like, I support like corporate institutions, but as a student of this, uh, school, I am very well taken care of and I am so grateful. Like it's insane. Um, and the therapist, I was like, I was like, how do you even talk in therapy? Like, what you, <laughs> like I'm coming in here, it's like a week after <laughs> Corona's hit and like, what am I going to, what am I supposed to do? Talk about my relationship? Like, be like, you I really doesn't, I don't like it how he leaves out the, you know, whatever. You know what I mean? It's just like, how do I not sound like a complete petty asshole right now? Um, and, he was, <laughs> and he was just like, Ramona, think about it as like a moment for you to like not think about the virus then. Like, if you want to talk about your relationship and you want to be petty, you be petty. This is a safe space. And I was like, thank you.
0: Thank you for the safe space for pettiness. Thank you.
1: Um... <laughs>
0: Anyhow, yeah, (laughs) that is so funny. Yeah. And I think that there's like a dovetailing. It sounds like in your like academic world, as well as your music world that I have found in like the therapeutic world, as well as the music world, where it is like, in a way, like a safe space for that expression. Like I try to provide that for my clients where it's like, Hey, if you, if that's what you want to get out of this session, like rock on I'm here for that I will go with you on that journey <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> in a way like same thing with music and I don't know like when you find this with your collaborators but sometimes someone will suggest an idea to me and I'm like I'm not so sure about that but the worst case scenario is we can try it
1: right I mean right now it's funny because right before the everything hit I was working on this um working on this dance like single basically with these two guys that I did a um uh, I went on tour with this guy, Ryan Hemsworth, uh, like mm-hmm. a, a DJ tour, because I DJ also, mm-hmm. um, and his um, friend Charlie Yen, who does a project called Giraffage, and we just got along so well, and we had the fun, like most fun just DJing back-to-back, and we always said, like, let's do some tracks together. And so, mm-hmm. like, a couple months ago or something, we started working on some stuff, like, just really straight-up, like, fun, like, housey, like, you know, diva type of stuff you know kind of like kind of like the stuff I did with night funk but not so boogie like more mm-hmm. straight, straight up the middle mm-hmm. anyways and I'm like working on it and then this whole thing hits and I'm like supposed to do vocals for it and for a moment I had a pause and I was like is this the right kind of music to be like coming out right now this like super fun music and I was like you know what? It's not about what's supposed to be coming out right now. It's about what I want to do. Like, yes. I, I want to be in my house and I want to sing like a diva. Okay. And I'm going to do that. Cause I need to do that for myself. <laughs> God damn it. Uh,
0: and I think that honestly, like really, m- like, especially it's so funny, like thinking about like the trends and how people are taking care of themselves that like, now there's like a run on, I guess, like yeast because everyone has turned into a bread baker. <laughs> <laughs>
1: i'm like uh i've been carbless for a year and i'm not gonna start now okay
0: seriously i'm like i'm like i i sadly am allergic to wheat in the u.s and so like all these people buying up all the gluten-free bread i'm like stay away from my bread (laughs)
1: i think it's so funny because i'm like i'm like i I don't know i just grew up kind of like hippie environment. And so I'm I've always just cooked for myself like all the time. And so it's so funny a lot of my friends are just eccentric artist people who like, you know, live in scarcity and don't really yes. um, cook for themselves. Um and uh which I totally like respect. I don't care you do what do whatever you want. But it's just like people are flipping like they've never <laughs> shopped for groceries before. They're like do I have to buy like 10 heads of lettuce? Like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, girl. Do Do you know like how much it takes to make a meal for one person? You know how
0: much that takes to make a salad, unless you're gonna like blanch and freeze your greens? Exactly. I, maybe, maybe that's not the way.
1: <laughs> People are like, I'm gonna buy all of the raw almonds from Lassen's, like, all of all of them. I'll just get the bulk container. Just give me, give me I'm the like, dispenser. <laughs> what about the ones of us who have been eating like this all the time? Like, what are we supposed to do? Yeah. anyways so so I I have a lot of feelings about about that whole business but oh
0: my god that's so funny and I was thinking about what you were saying earlier about like the mythology of like that scarcity with an artist somehow leads to productivity and how absolutely Mm. bizarre that is and also like the mythology aspect that like artists are not supposed to hold other jobs because that makes them not artists yeah it also doesn't make any sense
1: I mean it's like I understand that audiences want these fun stories that are so, um, about like overcoming hardship and are about the singularity and the exceptionalism of artists. You know, I get that that's like a very alluring narrative, but I also think it puts, um, people into positions like people like myself who didn't grow up with money, Mm -hmm. um, in difficult positions, because if we're seeing these exceptionalist narratives everywhere about artists who, you know. never had a job and they just worked on their album for five years in like in a hovel somewhere probably funded by their dad or something like that right it it puts people like myself who have a different timeline like when i was creating my first album good evening i was a receptionist the whole time and i was in school on scholarship like why not tell that story because my story is a working class narrative and it's not as alluring as the like I was in a basement with like my microphones and stuff that like I would, you know what I mean? It's just like, I, I feel like we need to move away from these um, old school, uh, archaic paradigms of what it means to be an artist. And we need to start making these narratives more available to people, to yes. audiences and make them like these narratives. And then, you know what? The fact of the matter is, is that they do like these narratives. And why are we afraid? Like, Like when I started posting about, my PhD program on Instagram and just posting about what I was doing, people were more responsive to that um, than they were to me posting a, a new single in like a, a crazy made-up get-up or whatever. Right. <laughs> it, people want people want realness, and so I don't I don't know why people why why so many artists are afraid of that. Um, but I think it has to do with the fact that. The arts is, has always been very economically split, split between
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: very rich people and very, very poor people. Mm-hmm. And poor people are meant to feel, um, you know, inferior. That's just how mm-hmm. we're meant to feel. Um, but I think that you know now with the landscape sort of moving some, somewhat towards like a different model. I don't know what that model is, but right. I think we can make these stories a little different now. We don't have to go back to the Renaissance. We can make this. We can make this modern. And the modern. Right. The modern reality is that um, capitalism is not working for everyone. Right. And we are working to survive artists as well. Um, I'm not upholding the myth of capitalism. I'm saying I gotta have lots of jobs. I gotta, have, I gotta hustle constantly. I gotta like think about um, the economics and how to make them work for me because they're not designed for me.
0: Well, and what you said struck me about like the myth of capitalism. And I think that that might be why people initially found these stories appealing Is that it speaks to that exceptionalism, particularly I think of like the American mythos of like, that we're all disgraced millionaires that only if we worked hard enough, like like we too could have this. When in fact, systematically, we can't. Um, And so people find those stories very appealing because they give them the false hope that they too can have whatever that thing is that they wanted. Um, and I think that people are finding more value in the stories that are more, well, complicated and messy of like, no, you might have to work like seven jobs because capitalism is stupid.
1: Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, cap- capitalism, it, and it's even more than capitalism. It's it's this patriarchal, like hegemonic, suprem- like white supremacist narrative too. It's like this thing about that you should be this sole powerful creator um, in a vacuum right hey who works in vacuums men. White men because they don't have to deal with children first of all also who works in an environment in which collectivity is not valued white people Americans yep. Yep. you know and 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 like why are we as artists negating the concept of collectives and negating the concept of you know uh, mess, the messiness of what it means to be a woman being a woman right. is super messy and it's super like uh, chaotic and and uh, indeterminate you know um, we don't know like what's going to happen <laughs> necessarily right. with our futures in the same way um, and so I just try to like I try to think about that about not appealing to the master narrative um, in my own life um, because I'm not going to fit it and this is coming from someone who studied philosophy for my entire young adult life. And so all I was doing was reading the tracts and treatises of, mm-hmm. you know, omniscient narrator, white men. And I was going to say, and I wanted to be one. I wanted, I, I, that's who I wanted to be. I wanted to be one of these thinkers, you know what I mean? Yep. I was like, I, you know, this, I, I was thinking about this ideal of me being just like this like person surrounded by books all alone, like with everything at my disposal. And I'm like, I, I started to learn more and more that, 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 possibility is not available to me in the same way
0: yeah and it's like it's almost like when you kind of self-insert into fiction like if you're inculcated yeah. in all these ideas all of a sudden you're like wait I can't self-insert into being this like philosopher king because I don't no. have that available and no. unless you're part of it's so interesting that you said it particularly like the patriarchal structure I weirdly enough ended up at a podcast event that Peter Thiel was speaking at oh yeah really? and I, yeah, it was very bizarre. It was a really random twist of fate. And um, they wanted specifically to have questions from female audience members. Big surprise there. <laughs> um, and what I asked him was, uh, who do you believe capitalism is serving? And what will our world look like when it's post-capitalist and post-patriarchal? Ooh, Jesus. He did not know how to answer that. Nope. Literally, like, the room went dead silent. Uh, The host said post-patriarchal question mark. Wow. He he didn't know even what that meant. Wow. Um, Peter Thiel looked terrified. And I was just like, I hate public speaking. Like, even like recounting that like makes me feel nervous because I hate talking in front of groups. But I was like, this is my one chance. Good for you. (laughs) And like, he looked terrified. And he actually said, he's just like, you know, actually capitalism is serving no one. Um, he's like, I don't think it's a good system, but I'm afraid of homogeneity and I don't know what it looks like after. Like he flat out was just like, I have no idea. Yeah. Like it was actually, I mean, it was an intelligent way to say I have no fucking clue. Um, and also express his fears and why he engages in extreme capitalism. I would
1: like to, uh, counter- that statement though, because I do know who capitalism is serving, um, him. Yeah, so like, That's him. A, little, a little weird response, but I, I, I think it was a, it, it's fair, but um, a little bit uh, covering up.
0: Uh, I was going to say, hand. I think in some ways, like he was covering his hand that obviously it benefits him. Um, and yeah. the question was framed in a way that would point out why it doesn't benefit him. No. um because in a way like it separates him from people and removes his humanity um and that that's you know well man. well
1: it is kind of a philosopher king answer right because you can uh-huh. sit there and you can say i believe this system is incorrect and i'm going to tell you all the reasons why but i'm not going to act on those on reasons. those reasons because i will explain <laughs> them and i will continue <laughs> to sit in my castle Thank because you, very much. I'm scared. It's <laughs> like, okay. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I am, you know, very much inculcated in a safe system of academia. And I don't purport to be doing anything necessarily, you know, active to combat um, capital interests, exactly. Um, but I do feel like for a long time as a musician, um, aside from sharing my music with people and touching, you know, their lives in emotional ways, I didn't really feel like I was doing my part to contribute to like societal betterment Mm. in like any serious way. Um, and now with, with teaching, um, which I didn't know if I was going to take to. I, I was like worried about it because I can be a little bit like brash sometimes. But um, I got this job at Occidental College um, mm-hmm. teaching um, as a professor of songwriting, um, and I'm going to teach music business there next year. Um, I also teach music production at UCLA over the summers. Mm-hmm. And I found myself very much um, in a position where I could give back something. Finally. And what I was giving back was I was paying very close attention to the students in the class
0: Mm -hmm. who
1: have less um, opportunity to have facility Mm. with particular um, techniques around songwriting and and the technologies to make music. and the reason why they have less opportunity are, are their economic reasons due to capitalism. Right. But there are also cultural reasons that trickle down of people from, you know, uh, people of color not having access to certain things just due to the effects of capitalism uh, upon, like, stratification right. of culture, but also with women as well. And so I, you know, just women as in terms of, like, the, the patriarchal system influencing them to think that they can't be technicians. So right. I start my classes very much from the perspective of like, these are people that I need to pay particular attention to. And these are, and I need you to pay particular attention to the fact that you need to, um, work harder to get up to this level because you're not taught that you can do these things, but you can, you can absolutely do these things. Um, and I design all my syllabuses, syllabi, to be very diverse and, like, covering a lot of different areas. And, like, especially in my songwriting syllabus, I feature a lot of female artists and women of color because I'm just, like, we, I know that the guy teaching this before was just teaching some bullshit about <laughs> music history. Like, I am certain. You know what I mean? Um, and I try, to, I try to show them, like, women are technicians, they're songwriters, they're producers. Like look at this, you know? And look at the history of music is the history of popular American music is built on black music. That's yes. the history. Yes. Like, you know what I mean? Like I'm just like this is this, from day one. I'm like this is the situation. <laughs> Understand the situation and that's the point that we're working from. No matter if it's in a technology class or it's in a songwriting class or a business class, it's like and so this is my opportunity. In all of those years of music where I felt like I'm just a selfish musician. I'm just, I know that I'm giving people music and that's really nice. It's very nice for them, but I need to do more. I just always felt that way. And um, I finally like have that opportunity. It's a good feeling.
0: Well, and I love that you get to do that by, by teaching and also by leading by example. Yeah. like by actually producing this work because I'm like I wish that you had been my teacher <laughs> <laughs> yeah I talk to them about
1: my my career all the time in my work I'm like you know I'm like I'm real with them
0: about yeah and work. like and the having you know even seeing in an academic setting and also being represented in the media like there are artists I think about like um I was thinking about, like, I just looked over at my poster of Bjork that's in my room. Um, I'm like, oh, my patron saint. <laughs> but I think about how for a long time, um, even reading interviews with her and loving Bjork's work as a teenager, I didn't know that she produced a lot of her music. And so there was, you know, little baby me in the synthesizer lab at my school, like playing around with our little mini mogs and like having a great time and not knowing that the person that I admired did the same thing. And so I never thought of myself as a producer for years Um, for one of those reasons was that I just simply didn't realize that a lot of the artists that I liked that are female were also producing their own music because it wasn't emphasized.
1: And when it's not emphasized, you think that you need help. Yes. So it becomes a psychological thing. Yes. And And this is what I tell my, like I had a, last year I had a female student, um, ask a question, um, about uh, a technical question in a a discussion section about like her guitar and getting it up to a certain Mm -hmm. level. And she's like, well, I guess I could just ask so-and-so male student. And I turned to her and I was like, don't you ever say that again. I was like, like, you look up your question online first. Don't ask someone first. You can do it. You're smart. And I was like, and every time you go and ask some guy to help you, you are working against other women by by showing them that you can't do it do it yourself you can do it yourself i'm like set an example you know what i mean and i was like lecturing her she like looked at me but i know, she, I know she appreciated it because
0: it's like but it, because it becomes just this like psychological reflex it really does and also i think that like converse to that is like if you do find that there's something that someone else does better i found that often like for instance with mixing my own songs i've just discovered that like it's better when someone else does it they hear yeah. something different than i do but i've been turning to more female mixers good i'm like i'm like cool this is something that i technically know how to do but i don't do as well on my songs who do i want to turn to all right i'm going to turn to my friend angel she's an amazing mixer <laughs> like i'm going to turn to sophia she's a great mixer you should give me <laughs> the
1: names of these people i mean i i like i'm not even I'm not a gender, like, separatist. I don't, I don't um, work solely with, like, one uh, type of person or another. I mean, I try to be pretty fair, but I can't deny that I have a lack of knowledge of technicians who are female on that level. I just yeah. do um, and, yeah. you know, all of um, a lot of my sound, the majority of my sound engineers, the majority of my en- engineers and mastering engineers have been male. And so I have to like check myself constantly because I'm just like, oh, I'm I'm not, you know, discriminating against anyone. It's like, well, Ramona, like the proof is in. You know, <laughs> the, it's like it's like, who are you using, though? You know what I mean? Um, and and I just, I'm going to continue to use Jake, my engineer at Stone's Row, just because we're so close and we've known mm-hmm. each other for so mm-hmm. long. Um, But I myself need to be more aware of the landscape and like who's available um, and recommend those people to my students.
0: Yeah. And that's exactly what you just said about availability. I think because in some ways, because of what we were talking about, about that feeling of like, you can't do it or you have to ask someone else, it's almost like a self-selecting system where there actually are probably more available sound engineers who are male because it's self-selected because And so, like, in a way, it's not to be a gender separatist, but to look for people who are either non-binary or female. um, It takes more effort because there are fewer of them because of exactly what we're talking about, that it's not a system that fosters capability.
1: It's a self-perpetuating cycle. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I think it's, you know, I think at least what I'm trying to do is to show the students, I mean, I'm not a mixing engineer by any stretch, but I can mix a little bit and I, I can do things on a very basic level. I mix my songs to a large degree at home. And then I'll, if I'm doing a more polished studio record, I'll bring it to somebody else after to, for the final touches and also because mm-hmm. they have um, access to the um, like hardware and things like that. I was
0: that. gonna say, yeah, that's the thing that I don't have either where I'm like- Exactly, I, I don't have, have a spring yeah. reverb.
1: I mean, it's right. Like, it would like, take up my whole apartment. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so, so, um, What I try to do in class is I try to show them that I'm a technician also. Even though I might be overstating my case, I try to show them that I'm a technician and I don't even make bones about it. I'm just like, and then this is, you know, this is EQ. This is how you use it. You know, I I don't try to say like, look at me. I can do this. I'm just like, (laughs) this is normal. This is the normal women know what they're doing. You know what I mean? That's it. And so um, at least, even though I may not um, be a professional mixing engineer and I don't aspire to be that um, I uh, try to give the um, aura of know-how in front of my students so that perhaps it gives some of these um, students more confidence themselves.
0: That's exactly because then that breaks the cycle of them not feeling confident enough to go into that field.
1: Exactly, exactly. They're like, oh, look, there's a model. Exactly. No, no, I'm not a model. But
0: but still, it's okay. It's okay. You're like, it's okay. I play one on the internet. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I play one in the
1: classroom with glasses. And I'm like, here we go. And they're, like, and they're like, explain compression. And I'm
0: like, okay. Um look away oh, but I <laughs> asked me one time I'm like uh it smushes sound so that it sounds better and they're like okay I guess that's good enough and I was I can, just like, oh, I can explain
1: go. it now but the first time I did it because it's such a it's such an abstract um idea. yes um, the first time the very first time I did it I started dissociating in the oh house. no I was just like imagine uh, someone like what
0: does this plug-in do and you're like excuse me I'm on another planet right yeah
1: I was just like it's (laughs) like and then like everything started to get really like fuzzy and I was like "Uh, the oh no
0: (laughs) (laughs) that is so funny in regards to I was actually really curious about the visuals that you do like do you collaborate with another artist for that or do you create the visuals as well
1: So the visuals that you saw at Human Resources um, were done by a close friend of mine named Tammy Nguyen. Mm -hmm. Um, So she has been doing my uh, photography and a lot of my like visuals. um, And I've been going to her a lot for other artists that I put out on my label. Um, And then she also just she does photography like she did um, the Anna Roxanne cover um, um, cover recently. Um, she just did my press photos that I just put up online. So yeah, she works with a lot of different people. She did some photos of Julia Holter. Anyways, she is like a 3D like, animator, also is just like um, kind of jack of all trades, and she's a great photographer. And um, she's younger. And mm-hmm. I love I like working with her because she's way just more aware of like what's cool, <laughs> um, but she has really good taste. But she's really she's she just is like plugged in. You know what I mean? And she she just knows what's up. Um, she does a lot of uh, work for her uh, partner Harriet Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, he's an artist uh, here in L.A. And um, I remember just getting to know them because he opened up for me. Um, wow. before, and um, I just remember being like, God, his, his, all his press photos, like his look, just like his fashion and his style. And she's like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, you know what's up. But so, um, yeah, she that, that show that I put on our human resources was like, an, it was an art show initially. I just were, was getting artist friends together mm-hmm. um, to put their stuff. Um, up and then, like, kind of sneaking in my music performance there. Um, so, <laughs> so, she had just kind of um, thought of that particular visual environment kind of um, secondary to the installation she did. That's but, so cool. But she just has great ideas for stage um, stage looks and things like that. I worked with another woman um, named Stephanie Franchotti for mm-hmm. my last tour in 2017. She was in that, she did that band called Sleepover back mm-hmm. in the day. Um, and so she did visuals for me that was also 3d animation for like my whole touring season that year. Wow. Um, and she makes really cool, sort of more like bubblegummy like like uh-huh. stuff. Um, and we did a collaboration show in New York too, where she just like did some mapped, um, projections. Um, so yeah, I worked a lot. I, I have a lot of talented women that I work with in that regard.
0: That's really cool. Cause yeah, I loved kind of like the marriage of the sound with the art because that's, to me, I just, I love like a multi-sensory experience. <laughs> same,
1: <laughs> so. same. I mean, Night started as uh, sound installations and visual installations like that. mm-hmm. That's when I first started creating these experiments. So I'm always trying to think about like, um, you know, different vectors of mm-hmm. like, stimulation for my shows for sure. Yeah.
0: And do you find, I was thinking like time-wise, I was just like, now that you are like firmly rooted in academia, do you find that you have less time to actually put together those kinds of shows? Or is that something that's like on hold for now that you want to do later? Or like, how do you juggle that basically?
1: I mean, the human resources show was like a trial run for thinking about how I could do this live show for this new record alone. I know how mm-hmm. I could do it with others, but I was mm-hmm. trying to think about if I could do it alone, what would it look like Got as it. I was finishing up certain aspects of the album? I still have like about like 5% left of mixing and mastering and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. Hopefully I'll be able to get to now in April that my master's exams are done.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but I really want to Um, make my live shows possible as like a multi-sensory experience where I'm really with myself working with my um, different technological tools Mm -hmm. and doing exploratory um, things in the moment that are a little bit more improvisatory. I mean, Mm -hmm. the songs are formulated, but there's some wiggle room Mm -hmm. and... I would see these live shows definitely as an opportunity for me to be outside of like the necessarily like the dance club environment that I was a part of for a long time. Uh I wasn't as much in a club environment for Night Jewel as like, say, like some people who DJ like, you know, like in Guzum Guzum or anything like that. But it's like I was sort of like in this disco genre. Mm -hmm. And right now with this new album, I'm really trying to think about it being electronic music but that it could be consumed in a variety of different ways like you could be right. seated, you could be standing you could be just taking it in as art you could be taking it in as a rhythm um and maybe being less of like a diva and more of a technician singer
0: you know what I mean oh, that's interesting that's so interesting you say that because I remembered being struck by like the obviously like seeing you live that it was like you didn't have super much of like a persona but I could sense that like you were there Mm -hmm. but when I was experiencing it for me it felt like I was more engaged in kind of like the soundscape as well as the visualscape. that it's like I was not as concerned with you as a performer like you were there and that was cool um but I was more concerned with like the sensory experience that was going on in that experience.
1: I want to be less of like a physical body and more of a voice for this mm. record because I've really started to um, settle into the idea of like not being as objectified on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that isn't because I'm against that in any way, it's just, it's just me developing as a woman. I'm not as interested in being that kind of object for an audience. And so yeah. that's interesting that you said that, cause that's exactly what I'm more looking for is to be, um, you know, a vessel for this like musical expression, mm-hmm. um, and, a, and a person who's making it all possible, but not necessarily someone to be gazed at on the the face of it
0: yeah yeah and that's when we were talking about branding I was thinking about that as well that it's like there are some performers that like to be an object of performance and that's exciting and then great yeah
1: that's (laughs) what I grew up with I love that I love that yeah I'm just not I'm not really that person yeah I I can be and I have been and I've done that and sometimes I freaking love it and sometimes I love dancing on stage and I love getting down on my knees and singing to people but right now I'm in a phase in my life where um i'm i at least with this record i'm more it's more emotional and it's more personal and intimate Mm. and it's it's less about slapping you across the face with the performance right and um it's more about getting inside my head
0: Um, and i think that there's such space for that too that like i don't think that all performance should be based on having like Performer as object. I actually am really fascinated by performances like yours because, and it might just be because of my own biases that I tend to be rather introverted. And so occasionally I will like perform when I'm performing my music, but I also low key dissociate, like when you were describing compression. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's like people are like, How'd you feel about your performance? I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, I <laughs> I a know more, <laughs> I'm a full
1: on introvert. So um, you wouldn't know because I'm can. Be be very um, extroverted, but like in person, you wouldn't know, I'm saying, um, if we were to just hang out. But uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm, I'm, I'm embracing my introvert for this new record a little bit more. Um, but uh, I'm also giving everything in yes. terms of the recordings. They're very sparse. They're very, there's acapella moments all over. You can hear the words, you can, it, it's like there, there's emptiness where you can just see me almost like naked. Um, so on one hand it's, it's introversion, but on the other hand, it's like really raw and putting myself out there. Um, so it's like a balance. I'm trying to figure out that balance in, in the show. And um, Mm. I'm so, I'm so pleased that you got to see a snippet of it in that.
0: Me too. I was just like, heck yeah, random stuff in LA. I was like, I'm trying to remember how I ended up on that show and I think it was that I have the Facebook feed blocked on all of my devices because it's garbage and I don't feel good when I scroll through it. Um, However... Because of that, Facebook has started aggressively amping up my notifications to get me to engage with oh, it. Like, wait, I don't know what you like anymore. Um, but the benefit of that is that, aside from getting a completely bizarre variety of ads, which never fail to amuse me, um, because I don't know what I like, uh, I get like event suggestions. Mm. um like it'll be like here's some events in your area you might be interested in and it's kind of hit or miss but they tend to notify me now of events that my other friends have rsvp'd to um so in conclusion facebook is Ah. creepy but it led me to your show
1: thank
0: you yeah like other friends had rsvp'd to your show and i was like oh, that's really good. I think I'm going to go to that. Um, So in essence, it's spying on all of us, but it led me to your check. that's good. (laughs) Hallelujah. There's something good coming out of all of this. Um, Like, it's so funny. It's so funny because Facebook, like, it's really funny watching it get like increasingly desperate to get my attention. (laughs) Totally. It's like, please, please pay attention to me. Um, Please, The algorithm was something.
1: I should probably get going, um, unfortunately, because I'm I'm enjoying this conversation so much.
0: Oh, well, we can chat, like, you know, not on the podcast. (laughs) I would like that. No, I think we should record every one of our conversations. Why the
1: frick not? Um, Yeah, Uh, I (laughs) I would love to talk sometime. (laughs) I've I've really had a nice time talking to you.
0: Oh, I've had a wonderful time talking to you, too. (laughs) Oh, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you again for listening to this episode of Why Not Both. If you liked what you heard, please make sure to like us and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. You can also come hang out with us on social media. We are at WNBThePodcast, both on Instagram and on Twitter. This season, we are brought to you by Under the Radar magazine. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print, music, and entertainment magazine and website. You can find them at www.undertheradarmag.com and feel free to support them on Patreon. Extra special thanks to our producer, Laura Studeris, who is literally a rock star. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you next episode. (laughs) i <laughs>